There are so many things I learned while reporting this episode about the victims of the Parkland shooting. Things like Luke Hoyer's mom will never forget watching Luke learn to drive in his grandfather's truck one summer day in South Carolina. And that Nick Dorette loved limited edition Oreo cookie flavors so much that he kept the empty Oreo containers in his bedroom closet. And the fact that Carmen Shentrup did not like to play the piano in public, but she would challenge herself to play in competitions because she knew it was something that would make her a better pianist. When their loved ones shared those moments with me, it brought these people to life. Luke, Nick, and Carmen were just three of the 17 people murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on February 14, 2018. Carrie joins us now live, so tell us more about this interview, Carrie. Well, when I arrived on campus... After reporting on the Parkland tragedy for more than a year, I've said their names and the names of the other victims so often that I feel like I've gotten to know them. I never will, of course, and that's my loss. In this episode, I wanted to get a little closer to knowing who the victims really were, what were their passions, and what might their lives have been like had they lived. For the past year or so, when we've reported on the Parkland tragedy, we've always mentioned that there were 17 victims. 17 people. At times, it becomes just a number, 17. 17 It's treated as a fact, a copy point. But it's much more than that. And I wanted to make sure that as we wrap up this podcast series, we take a closer look at each of these 17 lives and what the world lost when they died that terrible day. So many times we know the name of the killer in these mass shootings. Their name becomes synonymous with an evil act. And it comes with a death toll affixed to it. It becomes a part of the true crime lexicon. But we so rarely remember the names of the people that person killed. Here's Tony Montalto. His daughter Gina is one of the 17 victims. We need people to remember. It's not about the shooter. The story here is about the victims about the 17 souls that were lost that day. They need to be remembered. They need to be honored. They were, they were great people. That's April Shentrup. Her daughter Carmen was murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. She says each of the 17 victims was special. They had greatness. They were amazing in some way. And to know that the world lost someone like that, is it's a tragedy. I think that's why we call this a tragedy. That you know, it's not just that we lost someone that we love, but we you know, there's this amazing person who who did these amazing things but also had this potential to to do other things. I think you'll learn in this episode just how special these seventeen people were and how much potential they truly had. Throughout this podcast series we've examined what's changed since Parkland the people, the policies, and efforts to prevent these types of mass school shootings in the future. In this episode, we look at the one thing that hasn't changed, the 17 victims. Their hearts may no longer beat, but their spirits and their memories live on. That's one of the reasons we wanted to put together this episode as a timeless tribute to the 17 victims. So if someone listens to this episode next year or 10 years from now, they'll still know how special these people were, what they wanted out of life, and how they hoped to change the world. As I was contemplating this episode, I came across tributes written about each victim in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Commission report that was released in early January. That commission investigated every aspect of the crime, and those tributes are incredibly moving. For me, reading those tributes reinforced again the profound depth of this tragedy, that these young people and these staff members should have come home that day. 
They should be playing sports and laughing with their families and friends. They should be studying and preparing to head off to college. They should be figuring out retirement plans and watching their kids grow up. For this episode, we asked each of the victims' families to read the tribute to their loved one. Some of the families felt comfortable doing that. Some did not. In most of the segments that will follow, you'll hear the tribute written for each victim at the beginning and the end of each segment. The Parkland victims were as varied as our melting pot South Florida community. They were students and teachers, coaches and husbands, sons and daughters. They were dancers, dreamers, poets, musicians. They were scholars, swimmers, athletes, future military leaders. They were unique and they were loved. I'm Kerry Codd with CBS 4 News in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and this is Parkland, One Year Later. It was only a week prior to February 14, 2018, that our daughter, Alyssa Aldev, had selected her course load for the upcoming academic sophomore year. That's Lori Aladef, Alyssa Aladef's mother, reading Alyssa's tribute. Not only an academic talent, Alyssa shone brightly athletically as well. Alyssa was just 14 years old when she was murdered. When I spoke to Lori, she told me a story about the last soccer game Alyssa played in. The day before she died, she played in the last soccer game of her life. And that game, everything came together. Her passing, her shooting, she was a leader on the field. And after the game was over, I turned to Alyssa and I said, Alyssa, you know you just played the best game of your life. And she was like, I know mom, looking at her cell phone. Lori also shared a few video clips of Alyssa with me that showed her personality. Hello, everyone. This video clip is from a morning where Alyssa thought she left her Spanish textbook at home and asked her mom to look for it. In retrospect, it's pretty funny because Lori searched high and low in Alyssa's room for the book, but she didn't find it. What Lori did find was Alyssa's retainer on the floor. Lori told me she hit the roof and left Alyssa's room an absolute mess. This is what happens to my room when I I asked my mom to send me a picture of my Spanish textbook. This is what happens. Just a nice clean room and then it gets trashed and I have to clean it now or else I'm grounded. Lori described Alyssa as a typical teenager and mom worked to make life as easy as possible for her daughter. And I make a joke saying I was her personal assistant. Um, I would even go to the extent of lining up her shoes by the front door and untying her laces. So in the morning when I drove her to school, that all she had to do was slide her feet in to get into the car. Lori and Alyssa shared a special bond. And like all who lost children that day, Lori will forever wonder what Alyssa might have become. Lori said she had a conversation with Alyssa about Alyssa's future shortly before she died. I asked Alyssa a couple weeks before she died what she wanted to do, and she actually said to me, I wanted to be just like you, Mom. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. She wanted to have children and a family and, you know, just be like me. And, but I think that she was so intelligent that she could have done anything. As the one-year mark since the shooting approached, Lori wrote a poignant letter to her daughter, updating her on the big events for the family over the past year and remembering one year ago. Dear Alyssa, it's Valentine's Day, a day full of love, chocolates, and flowers. For me, it's more than that now. Last Valentine's Day was the last time I saw you. You wore a black and white dress, your long hair dangled, your makeup looked just right. 
Of course, your white Converse sneakers protected your feet as you walked into Marjorie Soman Douglas High School. We got a dog, her name is Roxy, and she's a soccer player like you. She kicks the ball around the yard, but sometimes puts it in her mouth. And your soccer team, wow, what a group. They wear your number eight on their sleeves and have started using it sideways to honor you, infinity. Oh, and I found out about the time you jumped off a bridge down by the beach. Alyssa, you jumped off a bridge? It's Valentine's Day. As I remember you, grief washes over me, but that grief embodied me to fight for change. I wish I could have taken all the bullets for you. It's been a year since I saw you. You in that black and white dress, those converse on your feet, and that smile. I'll never forget that smile. It feels like yesterday. I just want you back. Love forever, Mom. Alyssa Oladef, daughter, sister, athlete, friend. The light of all our lives were dim forever on February 14, 2018. We will spend the rest of our lives trying to hashtag live for Alyssa, hashtag play for Alyssa, hashtag shine for Alyssa. Scott J. Beagle was 35 years old. That's Linda Beagle, mother of Scott Beagle, a geography teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School who died protecting his students. Scott was a very humble young man who never knew how much of an impact he had on others, especially children. Scott loved working with children. Teaching afforded him the ability to continue with one of his life's passions, working at sleepaway camp. Scott's mother told me that Scott spent nearly two decades working as a counselor at a summer sleepaway camp in Pennsylvania. All right, this is Scott here in front of uh, Fox 40 News in Binghamton. That's Scott from a news clip when he and some of his fellow camp counselors went to a news station in Binghamton, New York. Scott's friend told me this was a window into his fun-loving personality. Clouds coming down, but not for us. Scott and the others initially went to the TV studios as part of an elaborate challenge for the camp counselors to get a character called Flat Stanley onto television. Scott and a friend introduced the weather segment. All right, where you ready? All right. What's up, Binghamton? That's Scott. You heard him. Mixed weather's coming up next. Pull by! There was lots of laughter in those clips. <laughs> Scott Beagle loved his dog, Murphy, and he was also a cross-country coach at Stoneman Douglas. His mom, Linda, told me that no matter where Scott was, he cared about and connected with kids. She believes that's why Scott died, trying to shepherd the kids into his classroom as the gunman fired shots on the third floor of the freshman building. Knowing my son, okay, his, his first, probably his first thought was, I got to get these kids safe. And you know what? I got to get these kids safe. It's my job. I gotta get these kids safe because I love these kids and I don't want anything to happen to my kids. Moises Kobo left his third floor geography class at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High when he heard a fire alarm on Wednesday afternoon. That's from a report I did a couple days after the Parkland shooting. I, was I spoke with a student named Moises Kobo who was in Scott's class that day. Moises wanted to tell the world that Scott saved his life and the lives of other students that day. He opened the door and he waited for everybody to get in. Instead of him going first, he waited for every last person to get into the classroom. And as the last student entered, Scott Beagle was shot and killed. He saved our lives. And I'm never gonna be, uh, I'm never gonna be able to repay what he did for us. Scott Beagle has been honored and commended for his bravery. Linda said she's learned so much about Scott since he died because she often visits Stoneman Douglas to speak with Scott's students and fellow teachers. That, that was my therapy. 
Some people go to counseling and so on and so forth. My therapy was to go back to the school, to spend some time with those teachers, to talk about Scott, and to spend some time with the kids. And they allowed me to do that. That was a privilege. What and, did you learn from that? Um, what did I learn? I learned how much those kids love Scott. I learned that Scott never shared with me how much those kids loved him. So I'm not sure if he didn't know or he was too humble to admit it. I'm hoping he knew and he was way too humble to admit it. Linda said she started a memorial fund in Scott's name to help send underprivileged kids to summer camp. Scott Beagle, teacher, son, camp counselor, friend. We will do everything we can to make sure Scott's legacy lives on. Martin Duque's tribute begins like this. Martin Duque Anguiano Jr. was a smart and driven young man who was taking honors classes and looked forward to taking AP classes and dual enrollment college classes. Now, next to the tribute in the MSD Commission report is a photo of Martin. He was in junior ROTC, and it looks like an official photo. He's in uniform in front of an American flag and a state of Florida flag. And the thing that stands out to me about the photo is Martin's smile. It is a wide, cheerful smile that lights up his face. You can just feel the joy and pride Martin must have felt in that uniform. It's a smile that when you look at it, it makes you smile back. Martin was just 14 years old when he died, and it was junior ROTC where he shined. He was a cadet corporal, the tribute says, and he won a bunch of awards and honors. And after he died, he was one of three Parkland victims honored by the U.S. Army with its Medal of Heroism. We reported that Martin was born in Mexico. And like many boys his age, he loved Star Wars, soccer, especially FC Barcelona. Messi! And was a good-natured kid. In the tribute, we learned that Martin had a strong faith. He prayed every day and regularly attended church. The tribute to him sums him up like this. Martin was kind, compassionate, fun-loving, studious, and generous with friends and strangers alike. He is greatly missed by his parents, Daisy and Martin Sr., his brothers Miguel, Alex, Andres, and Santiago, and everyone else who knew him. Martin Duque, son, brother, cadet, friend. Nicholas Dwarat was captain of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas swim team. He also loved to play water polo. He was a district, regional, and state champion. That's Mitch Dwarat reading the tribute to his son, Nick. Nick Dwarat was a senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And to hear his father tell it, Nick was on the cusp of great things. That's the tragedy of it. On one hand, we were becoming very close friends. You know, that part I often talk, speak to also where you want to be friends with your children because you can't be such friends when they're younger because you're trying to guide them and do and this. And then as they get older, you know, Nick was going to be 19 in a couple of weeks. Um, he's a man. He was man. He was a man. He was. And it was a beautiful thing to see. Nick had a scholarship to swim at the University of Indianapolis, and he had a firm goal in mind about the 2020 Olympics. His immediate goals were, was, of course, 2020 swimming for Sweden it's out there. And it's simply because he was really proud of his mom and his heritage. When I visited with Mitch, he took me into Nick's room. The first thing I noticed is how organized it was, especially for a teenager. Even the empty Oreo containers in the closet were neatly stacked with the covers still on them. Mitch told me that was Nick. Extremely disciplined, um, and I think, uh, I hate to, uh, not to belabor the point about swimming, he would get up very early uh, to go to practice, six days a week, three hours a day, if not more. The last year, extremely disciplined, with school, homework, 
swimming, working out, uh, spending time with his brother, you know, and with his friends. Nick was so disciplined that he wrote inspirational quotes on his dry erase board. You know, even on my hardest day, I will train as hard as I can in and out of the water. Even on my hardest days, I swear to give it my all, and I will let nothing stand in my way. Mitch told me it wasn't always easy for Nick. He quit swimming at one point, and Mitch said his grades dropped, and he changed. Then, Nick discovered water polo, and that got him back into the pool, and he returned to competitive swimming. The old Nick returned, too. When he got back to swimming and fell in love with a, his girlfriend and, but, and, and, and had a new coach, things, it takes a village, too. Things changed for him dramatically. It's like, wow. And, and swimming was a big part. Nick was the guy who, when the coach wasn't there, brought everybody together. We got to train. We got the coach is going to be here. Let's get in the pool. Come on, guys. You know, Nick was the guy who put on some crazy music and let's get in the pool, whatever it took. Nick was gifted outside the pool as well. He was one of 20 first-class graduating seniors at Stoneman Douglas who excelled in academic achievement, character, community service, and athletic achievement. But we all lost out that day, you know as far as I'm concerned, for, as far as Nick would have contributed in so many different ways to so many different people. He was a special guy, truly. You know, I, I, I could speak about Nick all day long. Of course. You know, there's so much to him, and you don't realize, well, you realize that I knew it when I had it, and I'm very proud of that, and I would always talk about Nick to everyone, because I was so proud. I knew what he was, I knew what he was doing. I knew what I, you know, and I'm a proud parent, so, <laughs> you know. Nick Dwarat, son, brother, swimmer, friend. We honor Nick for his love of life, his true love Daria, his positive attitude, and his respect for what he cherished most, his family and friends. Always on our mind and forever in our hearts, uh, we miss you Nick all the time. Aaron Lewis Fife was a loving husband, devoted father, coach and mentor on and off the field. That's Michael Connell reading a tribute to his brother Aaron Fife. Aaron was a husband and father. He was also a campus monitor and a football coach at Stillman Douglas for nearly two decades after graduating from the school. We both graduated from there, and he, he just felt a, a calling, <laughs> you know, from, from almost right after he graduated to, to go to be back there and to, and to invest, you know, in the students, kind of like how he was in, invested in you know, with his coaches when he was a student, and he wanted to uh, to help in that way. Aaron dedicated his life to the students at Stoneman Douglas, and Connell believes that's why Aaron rushed to the freshman building that day before he was shot and killed. He wanted to protect others. Everyone who knows him would, would say, "Yeah, that's 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 Aaron. He's he he always put others first, and he had a passion for the protection of the students and." And, uh, yeah, I just like, just like one of the last things that he said on the radio when the uh, RSO called him said, is that firecrackers? It's like, no, he's like, it's not. He's like, and he said, I'm going in. So, yeah, I mean, he knew what it was. He knew what he was walking into and he was trying to save lives. Ray Feist can't pass by a single building or street in the city of Coral Springs without thinking of his brother. That's CBS Wars Rudabe Shabazi. 
She did a story last summer with Ray Feist, another of Aaron's brothers. He was more than a big brother. Uh, he was my protector. He was a father figure in a sense when, you know, he was the person that you always knew you could go to. His main goal was to make sure that every kid was able to live up to their full potential and he was willing to do whatever he had to from making sure kids had lunch, um, buying them shoes, making sure they got the tutoring they need, um, rides to and from school. For now, he says he's focused on making sure his sister-in-law is taken care of and that he's always there for his nine-year-old niece. How do you explain something like that to her? Your daddy did something that no other person would do. He made sure more kids came home and you just have to be proud of that because not too many people would do that in this world today. He did something that other people who were trained to do refused. Does she have questions? She doesn't ask why is daddy not coming home. She asks, how do we make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else's daddy? Michael Connell said Aaron loved being a father. And that was, was always a, a priority, number one priority in his life, just like with the students. I mean, that's how he, he looked at it, you know, being a dad, being a good dad. Aaron Feist, husband, father, coach, protector. Aaron's enveloping presence provided a sense of safeguard that allowed others to be themselves. He will always be remembered as a hero. But to those who knew him, he was a hero each and every day. Jamie Guttenberg was a beautiful, smart, energetic, compassionate, and funny 14-year-old girl when her life was tragically cut short in the MSD shooting. Fred Guttenberg read the tribute to his daughter, Jamie. She should have turned 15 on July 13th, and she should be living her life now as a competitive dancer, a volunteer to children with special needs, an amazing daughter to my wife and I, an amazing sister, and an amazing friend. You told her the walls and opened up all the gates. Jamie's passion was dance. She competed at Dance Theater's Extreme Team in Parkland. In fact, next to her tribute in the Stoneman Douglas Commission report, there's a photo of Jamie in mid-leap. It looks like she's defying gravity. She seems to be soaring through the air effortlessly. Dance was something Jamie cherished. Clearly, it was something she excelled at. When we spoke with Fred Guttenberg, we met him outside one of the dance studios in Coral Springs, where Jamie trained. This was our life. Coming to this dance studio, dropping Jamie off, picking Jamie up. My wife sitting here inside on these benches, hanging out with the other dance moms, going back and watching as they're learning their dances for their next competition. Every day we have a reminder of what we don't have. So I'm not trying to fake it. I am emotional. Jamie was just 14 when she was murdered, but Fred said she already had big plans for her life. Jamie's dream was to be a pediatric physical therapist and work at the Paley Institute in Palm Beach. My wife is a pediatric occupational therapist. But Jamie knew that's what she wanted to do, and her dream was to help somebody walk for the very first time. Fred believes that Jamie was the type of person who could accomplish big things and had the personality to match. Jamie would have done amazing things. Jamie, Jamie was the energy in the room. Jamie was fierce. Jamie was tough. Jamie did not put up with BS, and she saw through BS unlike anybody I've ever met. Jamie loved the color orange, and her family created a movement called Orange Ribbons for Jamie that will donate money to causes close to Jamie's heart. 
and work to address issues that lead to gun violence. For Fred, Jamie's strength motivates him. Jamie was, in no uncertain terms, the toughest being I've ever been around. Um, she was someone who always stood up for others. And with her on my shoulders now, I don't quit. Jamie Guttenberg, daughter, sister, dancer, friend. We miss our beautiful daughter every day. We miss her laughter. We miss her voice. We miss her beauty and the energy that she always brought into every room that she entered. We will love her forever. Christopher Brent Hickson was a caring, passionate, adventurous, and responsible man. He was a wonderful son and brother, incredible father to his two sons, and a devoted husband. That's Debbie Hickson reading the tribute to her husband, Chris. He was a sailor in the U.S. Navy, both active duty and reserves, where he served as a machinist mate and military police officer for 27 years. Chris Hickson was a longtime employee at Broward Schools, and he worked as a campus monitor, wrestling coach, and athletic director at Stoneman Douglas. A couple of weeks ago, I got a chance to speak with Chris and Debbie's eldest son, Tom. They have a younger son, Corey. Tom is in the Marines, and I asked him his favorite memory of his dad. I mean, honestly, probably my favorite memory of my dad uh, might be a little selfish, but it was uh, when I commissioned uh, in the Marine Corps as a second lieutenant. He was actually my first salute uh, because he was a Navy enlisted member. So the tradition in the military is that when you commission as an officer, you pick an enlisted member to become your first salute. It's supposed to be someone who's mentored you and helped you along your path to becoming an officer. So it was obviously a no-brainer for me at that point to pick my dad. Tom said he and his dad would often talk about life in the military and that his father was a sarcastic, funny guy. He made friends with people so quickly, uh, you know, no one could ever really hate my dad, you know. Uh, he just had that kind of personality and that, that aura about him. Chris also had a genuine love for the kids he coached and saw at school every day. Debbie Hickson shared some video of Chris with me. The first clip is Chris in a dance contest with a student at a school for a National Honor Society fundraiser. The video starts out fairly routine. Chris is a little stiff and he's twirling the student around. Then, when the music changes, Chris puts on a pair of sunglasses and starts really getting into it. He's grinding and shaking his body, and the crowd goes nuts. Chris's personality is on full display, and he's clearly relishing the moment. The other video is one of Debbie's favorites. She said it's from a fundraiser at Coral Springs High School, and it's right up Chris's alley. It's a wrestling battle royale, and Chris is in a traditional wrestling outfit, acting out the moves of a professional wrestler. He's really hamming it up and acting just like the type of pro wrestler you'd see on TV. It looks like he had a blast. He definitely cared for, you know, the kids that worked at the, or the kids that were at the schools that he worked at. So, yeah, like talking about that dancing competition, you know, that was a family friend of ours who's also a student, you know, and she needed help for this competition. So, you know, he didn't shy away from doing that, even if it meant, you know, him going up there and twirling on stage and looking like a fool it didn't matter to him. And then the same thing with the wrestling tournament, you know, uh, that's probably one of the best memories my mom has of my dad is when my dad came out in that, that wrestling singlet for that, uh, that event. And yeah, he, did, he doesn't care as long as it is to help the kids that he, was, uh, that he was coaching and mentoring and teaching, you know, that's all mattered to him. Chris was at the point in his life where he was beginning to think about retiring and the next steps. That was actually one of our retirement plans was we were going to open a Dunkin' Donut in Hawaii. What happened on February 14th, 2018 changed those plans. Debbie says when she saw the news of the shooting, she knew her husband would rush to try and stop the threat. I knew exactly when I saw it on TV. I knew exactly where he was going to be. Um, no question in my mind. Um, 
And I know that if he hadn't done that, he would have never been able to live with himself. He did what he could, and um, he, he, he left this earth doing, doing what he could, and, and I'm proud of him for that, for sure. Chris Hickson, husband, father, veteran, protector. He lived his life helping others and trying to make the world a better and safer place. He will forever be remembered as a hero because he exemplified the motto, if not me, then who, through his actions every single day. Luke was a quiet soul with a big heart. His friendly face, sweet, sweet smile, laid back personality, and low key humor brought happiness to all those around him. That's Luke Hoyer's mom, Gina, reading Luke's tribute. Luke loved his family, his friends, his dogs, basketball, Clemson football, family trips to South Carolina and the Jersey Shore, the Miami Heat, Dwayne Wade, and chicken nuggets. When I interviewed Gina at her home, there's a large picture of Luke that sits on the wall above their staircase. Luke is smiling, relaxed, clearly happy and content. Gina said Luke really lived a charmed life. Luke had the perfect life. He was loved and he was always happy. And he, you know, she said nothing could be more perfect than what his life was. Luke was either shooting hoops, playing video games, or hanging out with friends and family. Gina said she's been amazed at the things she's learned about Luke since he died. One of his best friends um, told his mom one time, he says, you know, mom, he says, Luke, um, Luke helped me a lot. He said, always listen. And he says, he never, ever judged me on anything. He said, we just listen. Gina said that was Luke's personality, like with his basketball team. She said Luke developed a special bond with each member of the team and was sort of the glue that brought everyone together. Luke was the youngest of three, and Gina said she and Luke spent a lot of time together. You know, I called him Lukey Bear. I started calling him that when he was a baby, and even at his age before he passed away, he would indulge me, let me call him that in front of his friends. I think he got a kick out of it too, but um, he's always Lukey Bear to us. Luke was just 15, and Gina said he was in that stage of life where he appeared to be on the verge of a lot of self-discovery. I think Luke would have been very successful. He was just getting over that 15-year-old hump of feeling more confident, not quite as shy, coming out of his shell. and just think he was just getting ready to be who he was going to be. But on February 14th, Luke's chance at a future ended. I was very lucky that day when he got out of the car. He said, we both said we loved each other. And, and it's weird on that, on that day. I remember after he got out, I remember just, I think this was just a gift. I just remember just looking at him, you know, on the sidewalk going across. I just remember watching him. Um, I'm so glad I had the last words we said to each other. Gina and Luke's family are left with memories of him. One of Gina's favorites is from a day in summer 2017 when she and Luke went to visit her father in South Carolina. And like he did with many members of the family, Gina's dad taught Luke to drive in his truck in his front yard. So me and my dad sat in the swing outside and we watched Luke loop around the yard for four hours. <laughs> he, 
he was grinning from ear to ear. But the funny part is at the beginning, when he would drive by us, he was all tense, had all hands on the steering wheel. And after about the third hour, Luke had window down, arm out the window, one hand on the wheel, radio pulled up and would wave to us. <laughs> That's one of our favorite stories. Luke Hoyer, son, brother, athlete, friend. Luke led a simple and beautiful life. He didn't need to say much. Just having him around made the room feel warm and welcoming. Luke's contagious smile and good nature will be greatly missed by those that knew and loved him. He touched many lives and will be felt in many hearts forever. Kara Lochran was an amazing child with a heart of gold. That's how the tribute to Kara begins. Her family wrote that Kara brought joy to everyone who met her. And according to Isabel Dalou, a close friend of Kara's mom, one of the things that stood out about Kara was her smile. Everybody kind of describes her smile. You know, she was just a very happy individual. You know, when you met her, you couldn't help but smile. She had that contagious smile. Kara enjoyed lots of things. Reading, the Renaissance Festival, and spending time with her family. The Kara that I knew was all about family. Um, that was definitely the most important thing to her in the world, her family. After she died, Kara became known for Irish dance. That was something she did as a young girl and picked up again shortly before her death. Isabel Dalou said Kara's strong connection to Irish dance is part of her family history. Her dad is Irish. So Irish dance, you know, really brought her to what she felt was really a part of her heritage. You know, her dad was born and raised in Ireland. He moved here as an adult. Um, Kara has 17 cousins that live in Ireland and Australia. And, you know, it just brought back a part of her history, she felt. Kara and her family loved the beach. She surfed, and she was also committed to volunteering at her Catholic church. She had lots of friends and dedicated herself to academics. She was an extremely hard worker. She was a determined young lady. Um, she was a straight-A student and worked for every single one of those A's. Um, you know, she was just one of those kids, if you asked her for you know, 100% effort. It's exactly what she put in. And Kara was also a young person who looked out for others and wanted them to feel included. She um, definitely was a kid that if she saw you alone, she'd approach you to make sure you were okay. Kara Lochran, daughter, sister, dancer, beach lover, friend. Her tribute ends with this. Losing Kara left a gaping hole in the lives of all who loved her. Kara will be forever loved and missed. Gina Rose Montalto, age 14, was a special girl who melted the heart of everyone she met. Her infectious smile was there from the start and brightened any room she entered. This was a quality she retained throughout her amazing life. That tribute to Gina Montalto is read by her dad, Tony. A caring and loving soul. She was often the first to reach out to the new kids in class and welcome them into the neighborhood. She also had a great sense of humor and a penchant for being silly, even goofy at times. 
Gina Matalto crammed a lot into her 14 years. She was a Girl Scout, a volunteer with children, and she was active in her church. She was a great kid. She, uh, you know, she she straight A student. She loved to be involved and help others. She loved to read. And her tribute said she once told her mom she loved books so much she wanted to live in a library. Early on, she had some talent. Speaking of libraries, we met Tony and Jennifer Montalto at the Parkland Library a few months ago. The library was showing a bunch of Gina's artwork. She had real talent. I think she just was a creative person and just liked the whole creative process. And to have something like this would have just, she would have been so pleased. She wanted to have her work displayed publicly. Just a shame that she's not here to witness it. There was a gorgeous drawing that Gina did of a photograph of her mom on her wedding day. It was stunning. Gina was well-rounded. She played sports and even had a bit of a daredevil streak. She had a lot of interests. Um, she loved roller coasters with her mom. <laughs> Dad doesn't like roller coasters. <laughs> Not my favorite. For a 14-year-old, it's almost impossible to know what they'll become. And Gina was no different. But her parents know that whatever she chose, Gina would have dedicated herself to it. From that, you know, she was becoming a nice young lady. Yeah, it was interesting to see what she would have turned out to be. She wanted to be a veterinarian, and she told us she wanted to be a, a Disney Imagineer. Big dreams and big goals were on Gina's mind, and her mom Jennifer said the two of them shared a close bond. I can remember a parent coming up to me and commenting that um, her, she was visiting her daughter at school, and Gina and some other girls were all together, and they were all complaining about their moms. And Gina said, I don't have any of those issues with my mom. And I took that as a great compliment that we had a good relationship. Gina Montalto, daughter, sister, artist, friend. Gina will be missed not only by her family, but by everyone whose life she touched. But, Hello, mate. There are a bunch of videos of Joaquin Oliver, known as Guac, on Instagram. They show a kid who was funny, happy, surrounded by friends who adored him, and some tender moments between Joaquin and his girlfriend. It looks like Joaquin's life was pretty much what any parent would want for their child. Manny Oliver and Joaquin were especially close. He was an awesome dude. He was a beautiful person, funny guy. And I miss that, too. You know that friend... Probably you have that friend or a group of friends where you, where you already know what's happening and only by looking at them you go like, and he will get it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, and that's, there is no way to replace that because it takes years to build that relationship. So I miss that guy. Manny said Joaquin believed deeply in fairness. He was a um, very friendly uh, person. He will support um, the weak. He will, he will be that guy that will take care of you, um, that will take care of his mom and his dad. Joaquin was born in Venezuela and came to the U.S. when he was three. He fell in love with sports and played them all the time. Manny said his son taught him a lot about American sports and culture, and the pair shared some great moments together. We had, um, we had baseball trips, so he played baseball a lot. So we, we did this two years in a row, and we went to see... Um, to, to uh, ballparks mm-hmm. in different states. And that was a guy's trip, um, junk food, 
uh, messy hotel room, just having fun, listening to cool music. They want to stay in our city and vacate, that's on them, but they're getting out here tonight. Joaquin also loved the Miami Heat. He loved the team and superstar Dwayne Wade so much that Joaquin was buried in one of Wade's jerseys. Wade talked about that shortly after the Parkland tragedy. You're going to make me cry. It's, it's emotional even thinking about that, um, that his parents uh, felt that burying him in my jersey was something that he wanted. You know, you just try to hope that the time where you know, he was alive, that, that you, you was able to help bring some, some form of joy um, to his life. In the tribute written about Joaquin, his family spoke about his love of writing. In fact, his dad showed me a letter Joaquin wrote when he was 12 about the gun control issue. It's ironic considering how he died and some of the issues that have arisen about guns. I want to show you this. That's a letter that I was telling you that Joaquin wrote. That's Joaquin when he was 12. Oh, wow. You want to read that to me? Can you read that mm -hmm. letter? Dear U.S. gun owner, I am writing this letter to talk to you about how we're going to solve this gun law movement. Most of you have a problem with the idea of universal background check. Why are you mad that there is a background check? It's for your own good. Maybe you are fond of having crazy people with death machines. You shouldn't have anything against background checks if you're innocent. Thank you, Joaquin Coral Springs. Manny Oliver has dedicated his life to gun control. He believes that is what Joaquin would have done had he lived. So I lost my best friend. That's the point that I want to make now. And I owe my best friend, that happened to be my son, all that I'm doing today. Joaquin and I were very similar. We were fighters, rebels, badass, same style of music. Like we were really, we really knew each other very well. I am just extending Joaquin's presence by doing things that he will be doing. Joaquin Oliver, son, brother, athlete, friend. In the tribute, Joaquin's family talks about Joaquin's vibrant personality, his ability to connect with others, and his dedication to his parents and his sister. His family wrote, quote, We miss him each and every day. Everything we do is for him. It is impossible to sum up in words all that Elena was and all she meant to her family, friends, and community. Elena was a vibrant, determined, an accomplished young woman, loved by all who knew her. That's Ryan Petty, Elena Petty's father. When I spoke with him a few months ago, we talked about Elena. Tell me about Elena. What, what do you think, Elena, what, what would her path have looked like, do you think? Oh, that one's hard. <laughs> you know, uh, You know, you have, you have so many dreams and, and hopes and you think about as a father, you know, seeing her get married, seeing her be a mother, you know, have children and be a mother. And uh, she was an exceptional, an exceptional young lady and just such a good friend to everyone around her. Um, it was fun to, it was fun. I, I'm grateful for the time we had with her. I'm grateful for the 14 years we had. I, I, uh, I often think about what she would be like, um, what it would be like to watch her as a, as a mother uh, raising, her own, raising her own children, and I won't get to do that. Elena loved spending time with her family, her friends, and her dogs, and she was an involved teen. 
In an article in the Miami Herald after the shooting, they described Elena's work as part of the Helping Hands program of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, helping residents of the Florida Keys clean up after Hurricane Irma. Her dad told the newspaper that Elena, quote, understood her service could bring some measure of happiness to people who had lost everything, unquote. What a wonderful perspective for someone just 14 years old. The Miami Herald ran a photo with that story showing Elena posing with a group of other volunteers after an exhausting, sweaty day of volunteering. She's got her arms draped over some of her friends and a contented smile on her face. She must have felt so pleased that she was helping that community. Elena also achieved as a member of the JROTC at Stoneman Douglas. Attention to order! Attention to order! This is a video from about two months before the shooting. We are announcing Elena Petty as a kid of the quarter. Elena was named JROTC Cadet of the Quarter. Elena's family wrote that she achieved the highest rank possible in JROTC for a freshman and received that Cadet of the Quarter honor, which is rare for a first-year cadet. After her death, the U.S. Army honored Elena with its Medal of Heroism. Faith was also a big part of Elena's life. Her family wrote in its tribute, We are grateful for the knowledge that Elena is a part of our eternal family and that we will be reunited with her. This knowledge and abiding faith in our Heavenly Father's plan give us the strength to endure this most difficult trial. And for Ryan Petty, he's found a commitment to work on solving issues that led to the Parkland shooting through Elena's example. In many ways, I think she, she uh, set the example for me. This whole activism and trying to make change and trying to bring people together I and mean, she was that that's really who she was and what she tried to do she was 14 so she wasn't perfect she was still a kid I get that um, but she she was friends with everyone and just had this innate ability to bring to bring others together and make them feel good Elena Petty daughter sister cadet friend Live every day as though it is your last, was Elena's advice to friends. And so she lived her life in faith, not fear. Elena was a light to all who encountered her. Elena's light lives on. She was extraordinary. She had a heart that was just pure, filled with pure love and um she never was angry. She would always go across the aisle to make sure that she could help you uh, without asking for anything in return. Hunter Pollock spoke to us about his younger sister, Meadow. Meadow was a senior at Stoneman Douglas when she was murdered. She planned to attend Lynn University in Boca Raton and possibly become a lawyer. Hunter shared some passages from Meadow's diary entries to show how focused and excited she was for her future. These are Meadow's words. I could honestly say Lynn is home to me. The best fit for me is smaller classes, and that's exactly how I feel. I'm beyond excited to start this journey in my new chapter in my life. Building a career in Lynn is more than I could ever be blessed for. Hunter said Meadow had a serious boyfriend and that she believed great things were ahead of her. Again, these are Meadow's words. Thinking about the future can often be scary. When I think about my future, I think happy success simply living life to its fullest. I work my butt off to make sure I'm living lavish. Thinking about starting a family, kids, a husband, my own car, my own house is also exciting. I'm most excited for isn't just a family I will make and the career I have, but the life I will have in terms of reaching for the stars, traveling the world, doing what I want, and 
giving my mom everything she deserves. Meadow loved animals and spent time volunteering to work with animals and was constantly trying to rescue them. If uh, a cat or a dog was in need, she'd, she'd prioritize them before a human. We had two cats and a dog growing up that she, uh, she really spent a lot of time taking care of. and Just a special girl, very mature for her age. And, and um was beyond her years in uh, wisdom and, and strength and maturity. Hunter said their mom played a big role in Meadows' personality. Our mom, raising us as uh, we were younger, always nurturing and, and teaching us that uh, morals and re- to respect others and to have empathy and, and not to be selfish. Meadows' father, Andy, told me that his life basically stopped the day his daughter died. Everything got taken, you know what I mean? She would have been a great mom. She was a fighter. Andy and Hunter have become outspoken activists since Parkland. And Hunter said it's all because of Meadow and who she was. And it sounds a little corny. I keep my sister's memory alive by holding people accountable. Uh, I refuse to let my sister's my sister's death go in vain. And, and it's because we have Meadow in our hearts. And it's because that she motivates us and the type of person she was drives us to continue moving forward for more results. Meadow Pollock, daughter sister, animal lover, friend. It was just a tragedy that uh, she was taken from us so soon. Helena Ramsey should be in college, pursuing her academic goals and trying to make life better and more equal for all. Next to her tribute is a picture of Helena standing near a statue of Eleanor Roosevelt at the FDR Memorial in Washington, D.C. There's a quote from FDR on the wall behind her. It reads, The structure of world peace cannot be the work of one man or one party or one nation. It must be a peace which rests on the cooperative effort of the whole world. Helena embodied that quote in many ways. In an article written in the Miami Herald, we learn that Helena was born in England, and she was a member of the model United Nations. So it was apropos that Helena stood next to Eleanor Roosevelt. That the contribution that mattered was the intellectual and moral and spiritual contribution of a character. Roosevelt was a former delegate to the United Nations General Assembly. Helena's mother told the Associated Press that they've struggled, as anyone would, coming to grips with Helena's death. Anne Ramsey told them, it's like the active shooter may as well have just shot us, you know. Helena's family gave a news conference a few months ago when they filed a lawsuit in the case, seeking access to the confessed shooter's mental health records. Our wish is that a thorough investigation is conducted to prevent other parents from ever having to experience, you know, a senseless tragedy. At that news conference, they spoke about Helena. Our daughter was a beautiful girl, both inside and out, who believed that you could influence people to make the world a better place. From my research, I learned that Helena fostered cats, loved to watch Jeopardy, and wanted to show solidarity with the Orlando community by traveling there for a concert after the Pulse shooting. In their tribute, the family wrote that Helena had friends of all cultures and creeds, and even though she was shy and private, she had a wonderful sense of humor and a wicked wit. They said she was focused on inequality and the environment. And she had lots of goals like studying abroad, listening to K-pop bands in South Korea, and finding the pink dolphins of the Amazon. I looked them up. They're very cool. It's those types of dreams that her family wishes Helena could pursue. We'll never forget this, so we have to stand up and make a change. Helena Ramsey, daughter, 
sister, dreamer, friend. In her tribute, her family ended it by writing, On the day of the tragedy, Helena, like so many others who lost their lives, acted selflessly and put her classmates first, ultimately costing her her life. Alex Schachter was a special little boy. He was happy and always smiling. Max Schachter read the tribute to his son, Alex. If you Google Alex, any picture that you see of him, he has a smile on his face that would light up any room. He must have loved life. Alex had three siblings, Ryan, Avery, and Morgan. And according to his family, Alex had two loves, sports and music. He loved video games and playing football and basketball. And His dad said Alex rooted for the New England Patriots, Boston Red Sox, and Boston Celtics. Red Sox win the World Series! The freshman loved to play hoops and was known as a tenacious defender on the court. He hoped to attend the University of Connecticut someday. A special tribute to one of the victims of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Victim Alex Schachter remembered by the University of Connecticut at its first football game. After the tragedy, UConn posthumously admitted Alex. And during a football game, the school band played his favorite song at halftime and spelled out his name on the field. It deeply touched his dad. And this is what Max told the marching band that day. I got the letter from UConn admitting Alex into the school and it just lit up my life and it proved to me that there is good in this world. Max said Alex followed in his grandfather's footsteps and played the trombone in middle and high school. That's an Instagram video of Alex playing the marching baritone. He was part of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Eagle Regiment marching band when they became state champs a few months before he died. In the days and weeks after the Parkland shooting, Max Schachter focused on a poem Alex wrote just before he died, seeing in it a lesson about how his son viewed life and how the victim's families had to push forward. Two weeks ago, Alex was assigned a poem for a literary fair. He decided to write about roller coasters because Alex loved roller coasters. Life is like a roller coaster. It has some ups and downs. It may be hard to breathe at times, but you have to push yourself and keep going. Your bar is your safety. It's like your family and friends. It may be too much for you at times. The twists, the turns, the upside downs. But you get back up. You keep chugging along. And eventually it comes to a stop. You won't know when or how, but you will know that it will be time to get off and start anew. Life is like a roller coaster. Alex never got a chance to see where life's roller coaster would take him. Max laments that. I, I think about that a lot, you know. Um, uh, I think he would have gone to college and, you know, had a lot of fun and uh, just been a kid, you know. And uh, y you never know what path your kids are going to take when they grow up. I just wanted him to, you know, have fun and be a kid and not be next to his mom in the cemetery right now. I, I, I will never see him go to college or get married or have kids or grandkids. It's very, very sad. Alex Schachter, son, brother, musician, athlete, friend. Alex is loved and missed every day. Our beloved daughter, Carmen Shentrup, was taken from us on February 14, 2018. That's April Shentrup, mother of Carmen Shentrup. Carmen was silly, playful, and caring. She often made us laugh and was always looking to help others. From an early age, April says her daughter displayed academic prowess, some of it from a competition with her older brother, Robert. 
April remembers reading a book to Robert and asking if young Carmen could read the words. And she was like, oh, yeah, I know this. And she would just actually read the whole page. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, what's going on here? And, um, you know, uh, it's just that little competition with him. I mean, everything that he wanted to do, she wanted. She was like right there, the little sister. Carmen started reading at age four, tested for gifted in kindergarten and accelerated through first grade. Her academic gifts continued throughout her life. She could laugh. She could, you know, make silly, corny jokes one minute and then, you know, tell you something brilliant the next or or pick up an instrument and learn how to play it because that's just what she wanted to do. As a high school senior, April and Phil Shentrup advised their daughter to take it easy. Her senior year, I know we told her, like, you know, it's your senior year, just kind of take it, you know, a little bit easy, you know, just enjoy it, you know, do all these, do more, you know, things with your friends or whatever you want to do, but, you know, don't stack your senior year with all these high-level courses, and um, I think it was like a, a week into school, she dropped orchestra and took another AP class, because it was something she wanted to do, and, um, you know, again, so what I would say to her, what are you doing, why are you adding all this stress to your to yourself and she would say no it's not stress I want to do this I want to take this class it's something I enjoy April said that's indicative of how Carmen would challenge herself like take the piano Carmen loved to play the piano for herself but April says she forced herself to sign up for piano competitions because she knew it would help her improve so next Wednesday February 14th is Valentine's Day public speaking was another area Carmen challenged herself This is from a video of Carmen speaking at church just a few days before she died. She's actually talking about selling roses at church for Valentine's Day. So for all of you going, what? Don't worry, we have you covered. We are selling roses and we'll be handing them out Sunday, February the 11th, so you can look like you planned this all along. (laughs) Even at church, she um... also was the youth group president and uh, she knew that being youth group president meant that she'd have to speak in front of the church congregation and she really didn't like speaking in front of big groups or in front of group of people but she would do it (laughs) she would say okay I know I have to speak in church today and let me practice what I need to say or let me think about what I need to say. Carmen had dreams of becoming a medical researcher she was accepted into the honors program at the University of Florida and as a University of Washington purple and gold scholar. Her drive was to cure ALS um, based on her experience with people in her life that, you know, tragically died from ALS. Carmen's family often said they believed Carmen would have changed the world. It's a tragedy that we'll never get to know how she might have done that. Uh, she, She talked about living in Germany, having, you know, getting married to some you know, cute guy, smart guy, um, and then, you know, adopting children, you know, that was her idea of, of her family, was adopting, and, um, you know, I, I'm sure she would have been able to do whatever she wanted and accomplish those dreams, because that's just who she was. Carmen Shentrup, daughter, sister, scholar, musician, friend. You fill our lives with loving memories as we will always cherish. You are a gift from God and into his arms you return. 
May his divine embrace now hug you so very tenderly where we cannot. We love and miss you dearly. If there's one word to describe freshman Peter Wang, it's selfless. Elliot, this is so hard. Peter was known by his friends as funny and brave. And when TBS4's Maribel Rodriguez reported on Peter's funeral, it was clear that the JROTC member had died a hero. Peter, who was a freshman, joined the JROTC when he started at the school and was proudly wearing his uniform when he held the door so his classmates could escape. Sadly, he became one of the victims. Peter died as he lived, helping others. One of his basketball coaches told the Miami Herald that Peter was selfless and that he was the type of person you couldn't help but be cheerful around. He loved being in the JROTC and planned on attending United States Military Academy West Point. He liked the Houston Rockets, hip-hop music, playing basketball, and spending time with his friends. After he died, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point gave him an honorary admission for his bravery and selflessness, saying he exhibited commitment to the values of duty, honor, and country. He was also given the Medal of Heroism from the U.S. Army. And there was a big social media effort in late 2018 to try and get Peter the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Student activist Cameron Caskey told me that he believed Peter would be a worthy recipient. Peter lost his life defending others, which is what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to go into the military, and that is a young man who deserves this, this honor. For that story, I interviewed a pair of Peter's cousins who spoke in glowing terms of Peter's desire to always put others first. He was selfless, so he was always putting everyone else before him. Ever since he, um, we were children, Peter's always sharing with other people or asking if other people were like okay or were they hungry or were they like thirsty. Peter Wang, son, brother, hero, cadet, friend. In their tribute to him, Peter's family wrote that he was quick with a joke or a laugh and that he hoped to become a pilot. They said, quote, he was a hero and is greatly missed by all who knew and loved him, unquote. At the Stoneman Douglas campus, there's a sign at the front of the school. It sits on the northeast side of the school. There's a beautiful flower garden there with 17 angels and a sign that reads, Project Grow Love. Near that garden is a painted wooden pole, and on that pole is a small painted memorial to each of the victims. It's really lovely. For instance, for Alyssa Oladef, there's a soccer ball. For Chris Hickson, there's an American flag and the seal for the U.S. Navy. We'll have pictures of the memorial on our website, cbsmiami.com parkland. On one side of the poll is a part of a famous quote from the anthropologist Margaret Mead. It reads, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. That change is what many have fought for since February 14th. Max Schachter, whose son Alex was murdered, said working towards that change is what they can do to honor the victims. That's the only reason I wake up every day is to make sure that my little boy and these 16 other, you know, beautiful souls did not die in vain. And that if I can, my efforts can save another child, another teacher, it's all worth it. For the families of the Parkland victims and for the countless people touched by this tragedy, the work for that change continues and will continue for years to come. Many of the victims' families have set up foundations or nonprofits in honor of their loved ones to work for that change. 
You can find a link to each of the foundations at cbsmiami.com parkland. You can also read those tributes on our website. You can hear other episodes of the podcast there as well, or you can download them on Apple Podcasts. Parkland One Year Later was conceived, reported, written, and hosted by me, Carrie Codd. Editorial assistance for this podcast series was provided by CBS4 News Director Liz Roldan, Managing Editor Alyssa Merlot, and Special Projects Manager Carrie Hernandez. David Agudelo and Alexander Bombard served as assistant producers and editors. Thank you for listening.